Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 70, From Father to Son. I know, I know, you were expecting another Germany in 1200 episode, talking about feudalism and chivalry culture. And that was really the episode I wanted to produce. But as it happened, Cleo, the muse of history, refused to snog me, an event much reminiscent of my teenage years. I probably read too many books and articles on feudalism, which left me utterly confused with nothing interesting to say. I would never dare to say that this debate, on which so many eminent historians have voiced an opinion, is nothing but a wild goose chase. I have someone to do that for me. If you want to hear a straightforward perspective on what feudalism was and wasn't, check out Lecture 5 of the High Middle Ages course on The Great Courses Plus. Philip Daylander does a much better job than I could ever do. Now, which means we can resume our narrative again. Hooray! So when Barbarossa drowns in the river Salaf in 1190, the crown transfers to his eldest surviving son, Henry, known to history as Henry VI. To get your head around how unusual this is, let's just take a look back. This is the first time since the accession of Henry III in 1039 that the imperial crown moves from father to a grown-up son without a glitch. In the previous 150 years, the passing of an emperor had been a dramatic event, where all the cards were dealt anew. Just remember, Henry IV came to the throne as a child. Henry V, by rebellion against his father. Lothar III wasn't in any meaningful way related to the imperial family. Conrad III came in by a coup against the named heir, as did Barbarossa. The French, meanwhile, had five transitions from father to son over that same period, with only one six-year regency. And this consistency in reproduction is one of the key reasons the Capetian dynasty was so much more successful than their German counterparts. Though the greatest of the Capetians has only just appeared, Philip II Augustus, 1180-1223. More, and a lot more about him, later. Talking about famous protagonists... The other contemporary of Henry VI is, of course, Richard the Lionheart, 1189-1199. Of him, we will hear even more. But today's episode is mainly first about the lay of the land, and then the first attempt to achieve the main aim of his reign, control of the Kingdom of Sicily. Before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Thomas, Dennis and Christoph who've already signed up. Henry VI was born probably in November 1165 as the second son of Frederick Barbarossa and his wife Beatrice of Burgundy. His elder brother died very young and may have had some disability that rendered him unsuitable for kingship in the customs of the time, so Henry grew up right from the beginning as the heir to the throne. And so often with medieval figures we have little concrete information about his life before he had turned 18. It's likely he received an education to prepare him for the imperial role, and that meant he would not just learn about how to fight, hunt and drink, as his father had, but also a bit of Latin, maybe a smattering of theology, mathematics and then obviously reading and writing. 
Now, Henry VI had a passion for Minnesang, the art of the troubadours, who sang about courtly love. The famous Manesse Liederhandschrift, a compilation of medieval love poetry from the late 13th century, contains a poem by Henry VI. The poem is, well, it's a bit so-so, and some argue it wasn't even by him, but it does a reasonable job on conveying the longing for the beloved we would gladly sacrifice all his crowns and castles for. Well, as we will see, he was definitely not serious about that one. We hear that his court was a bit jollier than his predecessors, with travelling minnesingers, troubadours, musicians, even a fool. He was quite sociable, generous to his friends, and enjoyed intelligent conversations. Other claim that he was cold and calculating, and prone to brooding. Physically, he was less impressive than Barbarossa, a bit of a skinny one, not very tall. What was crucial is that he had been nurtured for his future role by his father. Since he was nine years old, he followed his father on his journeys to Italy and from place to place in Germany. In 1083, barely 19, he takes part in the complex negotiations that lead to the settlement between Barbarossa and the Lombard League. In 1184, he makes his first appearance in the history books. The Diet of Pentecost in Mainz, you know, that great event where Barbarossa and the Hohenstaufen celebrated its recovery from the setbacks and the humiliations of the 1170s. Officially, that was to celebrate the knighting of Henry and his younger brother, Frederick, Duke of Swabia. Once Henry had become a knight and was thereby now a full member of the social elite, he took on major responsibilities on his own. He headed a campaign against Duke Casimir of Poland in the summer of 1184 that concluded with Casimir giving homage to Henry and his father almost immediately. It was also in 1184 that an agreement was concluded, the results of which will dominate the reign of Henry VI. Barbarossa had agreed, with King William II of Sicily, nicknamed The Good, that Henry would marry his aunt, Constance. Constance was at that point 30 years old, whilst the intended bridegroom was just 19. Constance was the youngest daughter of King Roger II of Sicily, and that point, the only legitimate member of the once so fecund Hoodwill family. Her nephew, the current King of Sicily, was 32 at the time, and by all accounts should still be in with a chance of producing an heir. But as long as William remained childless, she was the last remaining Hauteville. Now, we have come across the Kingdom of Sicily quite a few times now, so we do not have to go over the full backstory again. Basically, the Hauteville had shown up in southern Italy as mercenaries from the 1030s onwards and had rolled up the Lombard princes, the Byzantines and ultimately the Muslim emirs of Sicily. In 1130, Roger II had consolidated all of southern Italy and Sicily in his hand and acquired a royal title from the Pope. The Kingdom of Sicily was, at least in the eyes of the Normans and the Popes, a fief of the papacy. But as far as fiefs go, the Normans enjoyed a large amount of freedom. They controlled the church in their territory, including the right to select and invest bishops. Their fiefs could be inherited, not just by the sons, but also by the daughters and by the cadet branches. All that had been laid down in a concordat the papacy had concluded with King Wilhelm I in 1156. Hence, Constance was the true and sole heir to the Kingdom of Sicily, provided William II did not have any further children. Which gets you to the point 
then it's really hard to get your head round. A marriage between the heir of the imperial crown and the heir to the crown of Sicily is the very, very, very last thing the papacy could tolerate, let alone sponsor. Now that the empire had found an accommodation with the northern Italian cities and gave it a modicum of executive power, acquiring Sicily would put the Pope into the chokehold of the emperor. The empire and Sicily were one political bloc, then the emperor could come down and besiege Rome at will. He could even do that without having to rely on German knights. Sicily and its wealth was more than enough to muster an army that could march on the holy city. Ever since the Normans had appeared, they were a key element of papal political strategy. One of the reasons Pope Gregory VII could stand up to Emperor Henry IV was down to his alliance with Robert Giscard. In Rome, the Sicilians and the Empire were roughly equally strong. Yes, the Emperor may have the ability to muster a larger army, but those could not be kept in Italy for long. Whilst the Sicilians may have less manpower, but were a lot closer. The Popes, who did not want to swap imperial overlordship with Norman control, played both sides against each other, sometimes involving peripheral powers, like the Emperor Manuel and Constantinople, or the great maritime republics of Venice, Pisa and Genoa. But as long as the popes were able to keep the empire and the Normans apart, they were free to pursue their policy of making the seat of St. Peter the most powerful throne in Europe. And that meant in reverse, if the Normans and the empire came together, the popes would be demoted to nothing but bishops of Rome. So how could this engagement and then marriage come about? The Pope in 1184 was Lucius III. He was much less of a man than his predecessor Alexander III. He did not manage to reside in Rome, where the Senate still ruled. And he could not even take over one of the smaller cities in the Papal States, like say Orvieto, Terracini or Anani, as some of his predecessors had. Being essentially expelled from his property, he lived courtesy of the citizens of Verona. Not only his temporal situation was stretched, he also struggled to maintain control of the spiritual framework. As we saw last episode, heretic, anti-clerical ideas spread around the growing cities, posing a direct challenge to the authority of the Church. Lucius III needed help from secular rulers to confront this fundamental threat. Concerns about the deterioration of the situation in the Crusader states may also have played a role. But all that still cannot explain why the Pope did not intervene to stop the engagement. It seems that Alexander III and later Lucius III even proactively supported a rapprochement between Sicily and the Empire. And that leaves only one reason. That great force of history known as the Cock-Up. The actual marriage took place in 1186 in Milan. By now, the new Pope, Urban III, could only look on and grind his teeth. But he could no longer stop the proceedings, setting a train of events in motion that will dominate the history of the Empire for the next 50 years. But let's go back first to Henry's career. In the last years of Barbarossa, Henry became his right-hand man. He was involved in the escalating conflict with Pope Urban III. In 1186 and 87, he took charge of Italian affairs, including a campaign against papal lands. 
The conflict with the papacy ended abruptly when the news arrived of the fall of Jerusalem, and then the popes now needed support from all temporal lords, and that included the dreaded Hohenstaufen. In preparation of the crusade, the Reich needed to be secured, and that meant ending the ongoing feud between Archbishop Philip of Cologne and the Emperor, and to neutralize Henry the Lion. Henry VI was involved in both efforts, in particular his diplomatic skill in helped finding an arrangement with the former imperial chancellor. And as for Henry the Lion, you may remember that he volunteered to go into exile with his father-in-law, Henry II, King of England. And so, when Barbarossa set out from Regensburg in 1189 to go to his watery grave in the middle of Anatolia, Henry VI took over the affairs of the empire. As I said before, such a smooth transition to a tried and tested new monarch is exceedingly rare in German history. His father had barely made it to the Hungarian border before events in London and Palermo blew everything up. Blew it up so badly that we'll end up with King Richard the Lionheart being imprisoned on the castle of Trefels. Now to understand these events we need to take a quick look at the main riders and runners in Western Europe in 1190. Up until now, our history was fairly linear. As far as the empire was concerned, the significant players were the papacy, the princes and the powers on the Italian peninsula, i.e. the cities and the Normans. By 1190, two new powers, France and England, can no longer be ignored. The King of France, Philip Augustus, was an incredibly tenacious, ruthless and competent ruler who tripled, if not quadrupled, the lands directly under royal control during his 43-year reign. We are still at the start of this process and he has not yet acquired Normandy or the county of Toulouse, but is already shaping up to be the dominant figure in European history of the time. The King of France's main interest was dynastic. His objective was solely to wrestle as many counties and duchies from his great magnates as possible, and the greatest of his magnates was Henry II, also King of England. Henry II controlled all of France west of Paris, and that was a lot more than half of the Kingdom of France in 1190, because we should remember large parts of what is today eastern France, and in particular southeastern France, including Provence, were part of the empire. For Philippe Auguste, this meant he had to use absolutely every trick in the book to get ahead. Religious fanaticism, emerging nationalist feeling, bribery, kidnapping, anything goes. And if anything goes, involving the empire and the grand schemes become part of the plan, as we will see. His opponents, Henry II and his brood, are no sissies either. They fight back along the same lines, but as luck would have it for Philippe Auguste, they also like fighting amongst themselves. They too will now involve the empire in their schemes, which means taking an increasingly active role in German politics. Barbarossa could still largely ignore the kings of France and England. All he tried to get from them was occasionally recognition for his anti-popes, but not a lot more. But for his son, and for his grandson, that will no longer be the case. The conflict between France and England will last effectively 200 plus years, will become the vortex into which a big chunk of European history gets sucked in. So Henry VI's chessboard has a lot more pieces on it than his dad's, and three of them now fall over in quick succession. 
1189, the wife of Henry the Lion, Matilda, dies, and a week later her father, King Henry II of England. For Henry the Lion, exiled former Duke of Saxony and Bavaria, this is a problem. Though his family is well regarded at court in England, his sons are close to the new king, Richard the Lionheart. He himself does not have a role. Richard is preparing for the Third Crusade, which Henry the Lion cannot join, since he had just refused Barbarossa's offer to come along instead of exile. Going to the Holy Land with the King of England would be an unforgivable insult to his liege lord. So he could not go, but he could also not stay. So he went for the third option. He returned back home to Brunswick. And that was an explicit breach of the oath he had given Barbarossa, not to return for three years, i.e. not before 1192. His return created a major domestic crisis for the young Emperor Henry VI, which got worse as Henry the Lion returned to his favourite pastime, capturing his neighbours' lands and castles. Within a short period of time he had not just regained his old possessions, but expanded them significantly. In October 1189, mere weeks after the Lion's return, Henry VI convened an assembly, condemned Henry the Lion as an enemy of the Empire, banned him and raised an imperial army to subdue him. This army marched into Welf territory, but did not get very far as winter fell. In these December days, the next piece of news arrived that would dominate the young emperor's life. King William II of Sicily had died unexpectedly and childless at the age of 32. Constance was the heir to the rich Norman kingdom. Well, yes, on paper she was, all the barons of Sicily had sworn an oath to recognize her as queen should William II die without offspring. The Concordat of 1156 clearly stated that the kingdom would be inherited by whoever is the closest legitimate offspring, male or female. But politically, this was an impossibility. The new pope Clement III could not tolerate it. Clement III, despite his ill health, was a much more proactive pope than his predecessors. He managed to return the papacy to the Holy City by settling the constant conflict with the Senate. He was also the main organizer of the Third Crusade, where he achieved the near impossible, a truce between Richard the Lionheart and Philip Augustus, so both could leave to recapture Jerusalem. Given the legal situation, Pope Clement III had only one option, do something illegal. There was still a branch of the Oatville family left. Tancred, Count of Lecce, was the illegitimate son of Roger of Apulia, another son of King Roger II. As an illegitimate son, he was excluded from the succession, but that did not stop Pope Clement III. Nor did it stop the Sicilian nobles who had sworn allegiance to Constance just five years earlier. So they elevated Tancred to be King of Sicily, and he was crowned early in 1190, even before the news had reached Henry VI that his father-in-law had died. I personally do not believe in a model of history where there are forks in the road that set the train of history invariably down a particular path, but I believe there are moments that put a spotlight on some of the fundamental choices that are gradually shifting events in a particular direction. And this is one of them. Henry VI has two options in early 1190. He could pursue imperial justice against Henry the Lion, who had broken his oath and the crusader peace. Alternatively, he can agree a hasty truce with the Welf 
and mount a military campaign to gain his wife's inheritance. It's a choice between the interests of the empire and the dynastic interests of the House of Hohenstaufen. Barbarossa had made his big U-turn in 1167 when he replaced imperial with dynastic ambition. It is a sign how embedded this political shift had already become when Henry VI did not hesitate even for a second. Sicily was what he wanted, and let the Saxons be the Saxons. Henry VI signs an agreement with Henry the Lion that is extremely favourable to the wealth. The only commitment was that the oldest sons of the Lion, Lothar and another Henry, were to join the campaign against Sicily. Lothar dies soon afterwards and the wealth, known as Henry the Younger, now joins the campaign. And it is a great campaign. As Barbarossa had now died, Henry had formally become king, making this his first Italian campaign. As a first campaign, almost all vassals of the empire were obliged to provide military support to the new king's journey. And the same goes for the northern Italian cities who have provided free passage as well as monetary support. The army started to go down to Lombardy in summer and autumn of 1190. Henry VI followed in the winter. In spring, the great host starts down south. Between northern Italy and Sicily lies the Holy City. And it is in Rome where the Pope now resides and Henry is still only king of the Romans. We are missing an imperial coronation. And that takes place on April 15th, 1191. Hang on, what do you say? The Pope, who is proactively thwarting Henry's claim on the Sicilian crown, was offering an imperial coronation? How does this work? Good question. I too am confused. There are a number of things that happen around the same time that might explain it. First up, Pope Clement III, the one who had engineered Tancred's accession, had died literally days before Henry VI arrived in Rome. A new Pope was immediately elected, Celestine III. But as often with these elections, it needed a moment to bat things down. Secondly, the Popes were in Rome only by the consent of the Senate. If the Pope refused an imperial coronation, he would have had to withstand an imperial siege. And that would only work if the Senate was prepared to go along. Now, the Senate made his own deal with the aspiring Caesar. They were keen on the destruction of the ancient city of Tusculum. Tusculum had been occupied by imperial troops since 1187 and was a loyal city of the empire. But the Senate wanted it in exchange for smooth coronation. There was nothing to it. Henry VI offered the Senate of Rome the city of Tusculum on a silver platter. Tusculum fell, its citizens blinded, killed or exiled, its defences raced to the ground. Tusculum, founded by Telegonos, the son of Odysseus and Circe, Tusculum that predates the city of Rome itself and had been a rival since the time of the kings, was no longer. For 900 years but grazed on by goats, and today is an archaeological park. Tusculum was the price Henry VI was prepared to pay for an imperial crown. And so Pope Celestine III crowned Henry and Constance emperor and empress on April 15th, 1191, a day after his own consecration and ordination as a priest. Immediately after the coronation, the army left for the Kingdom of Sicily, 
Pope Celestine, his hands still wet from anointing the new emperor, protested. He warned that God, or more precisely the interest of the Roman Curia, were opposed to the Norman kingdom falling into the hands of the emperor. Henry and Constance shrugged off these papal objections and simply pointed to their undeniable rights as heirs to William II. The army moved towards the border with Apulia. Cities quickly fell to Henry and Constance. Rocadaca, Capua, Salerno. Only when they arrived before Naples did they encounter resistance. Richard of Acera, the brother-in-law of Tancred, commanded the city's defences. Now Naples' history goes back all the way to the 2nd century BC as an early Greek colony. In the 9th century it had become a largely independent duchy that lasted until 1139 and King Roger II incorporated it into the new Sicilian kingdom. With a population of 30,000 it was the second city of the kingdom, surpassed only by Palermo. Its position at the centre of the Bay of Naples and its defensive walls made a siege entirely dependent upon being able to prevent any resupply by sea. For that purpose, Emperor Henry VI had engaged the ever-loyal Pisans and Genoese. A Pisan fleet had arrived in May and duly closed off the city. The land troops and soldiers began running up against the walls. Miners were digging tunnels to bring about the collapse of the walls and siege engineers put their terrifying siege engines together. All looks good, the time is of essence, as always in Italy. There wasn't time that ran out, but sea room. One day, the fleet of Tancred's admiral Margarito shows up in the bay. Margarito, like Tancred himself, was a soldier and sailor, forged in incessant campaigns against Byzantium, North African emirs, Venice and pretty much anyone else in the Mediterranean. We know little about the actual sea battle, but... In the end, the Pisan ships are on the bottom of the sea, the Pisan sailors locked up in Castello Amare, the castle in the sea before Naples, and the supply routes into the city are open again. Henry did not give up, though. There was still a Genoese fleet on its way. The Genoese had been delayed, for whatever reasons, which may have included unwillingness to fight side by side with the evil Pisans. Both Pisa and Genoa had been offered generous trade privileges in Sicily for their support, which is not always an ideal system to ensure cooperation between the two maritime powers. Whilst Henry is counting down the days until the Genoese arrive, Italy's greatest and undefeated weapon arrives. Summer. And with summer comes disease and death for the Germans. Will they ever learn? Sell in May, go away, as we bankers used to say. It's a rerun of 1167, with a double twist though. Like in 1167, soldiers and magnates die in droves. It's again the Archbishop of Cologne who bites the dust. It's the same Archbishop Philip who so hugely benefited from the fall of Henry the Lion. And the obligatory Duke of Bohemia is also on the list, as are so many more. What we did not see in 1167 were defections. And that's exactly what happened. The younger Henry, son and heir of Henry the Lion, went across the line and joined the defenders in Naples. Such a blatant change of sides, in particular in a foreign war, was pretty much unprecedented and further alienated the wealth and the Hohenstaufen clans, undoing all the reconciliation work Barbarossa had done in the years post-1152. But the final blow came from Salerno. As the siege had bedded down, Constance had moved to the nearby city of Salerno to await the outcome. 
as disease took hold of the camp outside Naples and the siege was lifted, the citizens of Salerno and their archbishop panicked. They had opened the gates to Henry and Constance without the slightest bit of resistance. They had welcomed the empress in an effort to ingratiate themselves with the new rulers and maybe get some privileges or even full royal protection. Now that Henry's army was defeated, Tancred would be back, and he will take revenge on his treasonous citizens of Salerno. It did not matter that other cities opened their gates as well. Salerno had stuck its neck out further than the rest, and that means that neck would be cut off. And they distressed it the only thing that would rescue them from certain destruction. They arrested the Empress Constance and delivered her as a prisoner to King Tancred in Palermo. Henry, who had picked up the disease himself, was lying on his sickbed at the monastery of Monte Cassino when he heard about his wife's arrest. All seems lost, but it was not. Henry VI recovered and returned to Germany. En route, he meets King Philip Auguste of France. As the two men were swapping stories, talk about a short stop Philip Auguste and Richard the Lionheart had made in Messina. There, the two kings had met with the usurper King Tancred. Whilst Philip Auguste kept his distance, Richard the Lionheart pushed their Hey, we are both Normans card. Tancred was not quite as excited about his long-lost cousin, but after the Lionheart's soldiers had sacked Messina, he started to see the family resemblance. Tancred and Richard made a deal, whereby Richard recognized Tancred as the legitimate king of Sicily and promised him support in case of an attack. In return, Tancred gave him, well, a busload of cash, which was officially a refund of the dowry of Richard's sister and a contribution to the crusade, but in reality, just money for Richard's pocket. And Tancred promised to make Richard's younger brother, Arthur of Brittany, the heir to the kingdom. How much this alliance was worth to Tancred is surely in doubt. But from Henry's perspective, this English king seems to be behind all the things that had gone wrong so far. He had supported Henry the Lion's return to Brunswick. He is supporting Tancred of Hauteville, and he may have indirectly encouraged that unimaginable defection of an imperial prince. All of that was not only politically irritating, but also a major breach of imperial law. Henry VI hence declared Richard the Lionheart an enemy of the empire. And Richard will soon appear inside the empire, more specifically in the lands of Leopold of Austria a man Richard had insulted during his stint in the Holy Land. Leopold was not the only one he had insulted, but the only one whose lands he decided to cross on his way home. How this will pan out you may know already, but what Henry VI does with the money you may not know. We will see about that next time. As I'm still on holiday, I know it is rude, but timing for the next episode may again be a bit later than usual. Apologies for that. Before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you that this show does not have to start with me endorsing mattresses or meal kits. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly and boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it is more likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. 
As always, all the links are in the show notes.